Welcome to episode 35, and wasn't Ken Bryson great last week? I hope to continue to have him and others share their experiences with me as we continue to move through the journey. We welcomed Rhode Island, and that's awesome. While it would be great to get to all 50 states, at 37, I think a good goal is 40. Listeners have tuned in from 282 cities from around the world. I hope my journey helps both other adoptees, people in the Asian American community, and share stories about my adventures to entertain and hopefully inspire as well. Last week, there were some really memorable experiences and ended with two amazing and humbling awards. For my military veterans, I'm sure you understand my pride in the 7th Air Force CGO of the Year, and still, the second major Air Command award in a row isn't something that a lot of people have done in their careers. So this week, we're going to the DMZ, share some more experiences and more surprises at work. I found some photos of the visit by Joanne, Ken, and I at the Korean village that I referred to two weeks ago. So those will be posted this week. Most interesting to me at the village was the homes of the day and the traditional Korean attire that many older and younger Koreans still wear, both at traditional ceremonies and special events. It's distinctively Korean, and when I see it, it is with a sense of pride that I didn't have growing up. Ken and I also mentioned the wonderful experiences at the 1988 Seoul Olympics. Because of my volunteering at the Holt Orphanage at Ilsan, I met some of the most amazing young men in Korea. Some of them were former orphans who were confined to wheelchairs and found a passion in athletics. This was the first year that Korea entered the 1988 Paralympics in wheelchair basketball. As many of you probably know, the Paralympics are held every four years after the Summer Olympics and are held for those who are physically disabled. The symbol for the Olympics was gumdori, the Korean word for teddy bear. While bears are commonly associated with wisdom and courage, the pair is depicted with their legs tied together, symbolizing the ability to overcome adversity through cooperation and to encourage mankind to work together peacefully and harmoniously. Wouldn't it be great if we all took this symbol to heart in our everyday lives around the world? On my visits to Holt, I often interacted with the athletes as some of them spoke a little English, and they were also adults. Because a majority were associated with the Holt organization, they hosted the Korean team at the Ilsan facilities and provided housing during their training. It was truly amazing to see these athletes in action. The team made me an honorary wheelchair basketball coach. Now, when I say honorary, it truly was just an act of kindness because I'm sure I wasn't a lot of help other than perhaps providing energy and positive support. The athletes taught me how to make a basket from a wheelchair. It's not the same, for sure. First, I can't make a basket with two legs, so can imagine how difficult it was for me. I still vividly remember their quest as they competed. And while they didn't come close to a medal, they did achieve personal pride on the world stage. Grandma Holt spoke to them after their final loss and both praised their efforts and tenacity. For some, this also meant they had to go back to their regular lives, which at that time was viewed by society in less than a positive way. Even so, I think that even today, 
Many of them likely remember that experience with a great deal of pride. I know that I often have thought of how these young men may not have been able to use their legs. They used their arms and mostly their heart to compete internationally. Spending my time at the Holt Orphanage was rewarding. I'm sure you figured that out by now. I learned about myself and how lucky I was that despite my start, I survived. I'm posting some photos that I think you will both enjoy and see how wonderful the children were at Holt. It's pictures of a Christmas season in 1987 where we attended the Christmas pageant and it really did warm your heart. Children were just so happy, so filled with joy for the blessings that they had. I think you'll see those in the photos. Love, happiness, and while you had to be there, I hope that the photos I selected will almost put you there. Going back each time reminded me that being able to even make the smallest contribution was important. Meeting Molly Holt and Grandma Holt was a pleasure, as Joanne and I discussed earlier. The Holt family made our lives happen. I've mentioned this before, and as we are winding down the Korean experience, times were very different in 1958. Korea wasn't an industrial powerhouse. Korea didn't acknowledge that there were even orphans, much less from the war, because in fact many were mixed-race children due to the military personnel assigned during the war. When I read the news, some as late as last week, there are stories, sad stories, about newborns thrown away right here in the United States, and it does remind me of my own unfortunate start. Not because I'm doing this podcast, it's because, like me, their life is uncertain and defenseless. The link in every episode is there for the Safe Haven Baby Boxes organization. This organization was founded by a woman who was also abandoned, and made it her life's work to save newborns as many as possible. I, for sure, was a fortunate one. Many are not. As the boy in the trash can, even almost 65 years ago, being adopted is not always the easiest thing to comprehend. Being adopted by Caucasian parents has its own unique challenges. And being adopted into a family as I have often said, a put-together family of children of different ages and different historical starts to life. It was an experience that no matter the difficulties that we faced, sometimes tragic, that seeing those at Ilsan almost, not quite, almost made you feel like the luckiest person in the world. I guess being adopted in some ways is like winning the lottery, I know that I did. A very memorable touristy event while we were stationed in Korea in the 1980s was the visit to the DMZ, and I'm sure it's the same today. Yes, the so-called Korean police action is not settled. And if you've been to Washington, D.C., you may have seen the Korean War Memorial. It's just about across from the Lincoln and a half block from the Vietnam Memorial. If you haven't seen it, you must. There are statues of military in uniforms with the presence 
of a cold and tiring environment. The memorial honors all nations that participated in the war. After all, let's be fair, and no disrespect to President Truman, it wasn't a police action. It's possibly the only place in the world where you can walk freely from a democratic nation to a communist nation and back with ease. When you learn of the soldiers on the north, you tend to understand a true reality of living on the peninsula. I'm posting pictures of the truce table and where you technically do walk into North Korea. I'm sure as a military officer, thoughts might have been different, and being born in the Republic of Korea not far after the war, there are and were additional thoughts. Nonetheless, the DMZ should be more than a tourist place. It should be a place for you where an understanding of democracy comes face to face with communism. I truly wish more people could actually experience this. The tension, the absolute fear of how it's very different is only an inch away. I mentioned how close Ilsan is to North Korea and my drive to and from. Yet what is so wonderful about the people that live that close is that they live their lives. Yes, there are reminders. And to be fair, it's been way too long to not have peace. Mentioning driving to Ilsan, well, I did get used to driving in Korea. It's definitely different in 1987-89, to 89, as I've learned when I've been back to Korea well since then. Not only did I drive my little maroon Hyundai pony, I also drove our NAV vehicles, 653 and 3811, that I mentioned to Seoul because of our mission at Seoul House. Well, one day I was driving through Seoul, and Ken was actually with me. I was driving along, minding our own business, and there was a cyclist coming down the road that I was turning into. In 1988, that cyclist had a gas-powered motor so it could go more efficiently, but I didn't realize that was the case. It was more like a motorcycle and stacked with goods like many are. As I saw the bicycle, I knew I had plenty of time to turn into the street. Well, (laughs) I or we hit each other. Okay, in hindsight, it's still not completely clear. The cyclist flew over the car and landed in the road. I stopped in panic to see if the man was okay. Fortunately, he seemed fine. We called the military police, who is responsible when a minor accident occurs with a military member. They were there within minutes because Yongsan Army Base was very close. The guy knew that I was an American military member because I was in uniform, and he figured it was a good opportunity. The military police were used to negotiating situations like this. The guy initially wanted 50 US dollars. The MP said, how much cash do you have? Well, nowhere near 50. After a fair amount of discussion that I didn't fully understand, the guy finally said he wanted his pants replaced since they got ripped. Well, that seemed very reasonable. Pants in 1988 probably cost a couple of bucks. We finally settled for all the cash I had in my wallet. It was only about $20. It was a bit scary at first because it could have been much worse. Then, as it unfolded, let's just say it was, well, it became a story in my podcast. We were often invited to events with the senior leadership of both the Korean Army and the Korean Air Force. 
Some events would have local Korean political leaders, partly due to our MWR mission and interaction with Seoul House. Learning to be good guests was important. Many times, Major Clovis would attend, and sometimes he would just send me. The events would primarily be dinner and a lot of drinking. The drinking was, of course, soju, and I had to learn a trick that I would use many times. Many of the events would be at a local restaurant in Songtan. There would be a lot of toasting because that was kind of a typical thing that they would often do. And you really have to be an active participant. Each setting had a water glass, and the trick is to first drink a bit less than half of the glass. If you drank too much of it, the server would refill it, so you had to keep it at that perfect level. Since soju is clear, you would do the toast with the smallest possible sip, as it's very strong, and then you would grab the water glass and slowly release the soju back into the water. In Korea, it is impolite to refill your own glass of soju, and someone will always fill yours because A, you're a guest, and B, because that's kind of a tradition, and you in turn then are obligated to fill their glass, and this would go on and on and on. During this time, when you were doing a trick that I learned, you also have to remember, don't drink your own water. I remember one time when I was at one of these events, and a Korean general left quite inebriated. I tried to help him to a taxi, and he insisted that he could drive home. He couldn't. After walking a block or so, I said, well, I need to take a taxi back to the base. I flagged one down. I put the general in the taxi and told the driver to take him to the Korean army base, and off they went. I mentioned that the officers' club and many other facilities came online during my time since I was in charge of facility projects. The club was indeed amazing, and it was located maybe just a block from our office and my dorm. A unique thing about overseas bases was that the military clubs often had slot machines, and frankly, this is how the clubs in Korea, or certainly at Osan, maintained their profitability. The rule was that only U.S. citizens could play the machines. What I will say is that managers turned a blind eye to actually play them. A lot of the Koreans on base did play the slot machines. As they say in Las Vegas, they don't build new casinos on what you win. The Yale Club only had about 12 machines, as I recall, while the NCO Club had quite a large room with many machines. I don't recall if there were casinos in Songtan City. What I do recall is that a machine similar to a slot machine did take a lot of our money. Those were video game machines. There were little arcades tucked away everywhere. Ken and I would play these for hours on end. The game we played? 1941. If you aren't familiar, this is a game where you shoot down planes and other military aircraft. We played this for hours. I think it was a hundred won to play, so a couple of pennies in U.S. dollars. Machines were old, yet they worked great. The stools you sat on, however, were quite a bit less inviting. Ah, 1941. I smile just thinking about the fun we had. On the base, we had about 22 different facilities in MWR, And since many of them were designed to make money because it was for the overall morale and welfare of the base community, we had a lot of Korean national employees. In 1988, the labor union that represented the Korean national employees decided that they were going to go on strike. 
It was chaos, and I remember it pretty well. MWR, along with the base exchange or the base department store and gas station, had non-appropriate fund employees, and a lot of them. And there were also Korean appropriate fund employees across the base that were part of the union. As this unfolded, there were some employees who wanted to stay and work. And there were also employees that were in managerial positions that didn't realize that they weren't part of the strike. It did come to a surprise for some. The first priority was to identify the most important facilities to open as quickly as possible. The clubs and food establishments were important because it was very difficult to get on the base. If that Does that seem odd? There were demonstrators at the gates, not only base people, others as well, just joining in the chaos. The security police were augmented with Korean military to help keep the demonstrators back. They were climbing over on cars and up trying to get into the gate itself. They especially targeted cars that they thought might have Korean employees in them that were trying to go to work even though they were part of the union. They actually succeeded in turning a couple of the cars on their sides. We provided as much makeshift housing for those who are willing to work and stay on base. Many of the American spouses that lived on base came out to volunteer. Mrs. Klopas, for example, volunteered at the club. Within a half day, we had the club open. Remember the La Cantina, the Mexican restaurant at the golf course? Those employees tried to walk out. Not so fast. One of my fellow lieutenants, who was in charge of the NAF financial system, reminded us that they weren't government employees. Therefore, they weren't part of the strike. They were staffed with contract employees of a local company ran by a man named Mr. Lee. Mr. Lee was extremely well-respected and well-connected, not just in Songtan, but also in Seoul. He worked with us to get the employees working and getting those facilities opened. You may be surprised one of the most desired facilities to get reopened was the Class 6 store, or the liquor store. You know who the responsible officer of that facility was, so I huddled with the manager to see how or if we could open it. Unlike facilities like the club and other MWR activities, members could charge their bills to their club cards, reducing the need for cash handling. At the time, overseas bases had a very high percentage of club members, in part because it was such a vital part of the base community, and the membership fees were a fraction of what they are at stateside bases. The Class 6 store was not part of the club system, and there were also the obvious concerns for inventory control. Yet, by the end of the second day, the Class 6 store was announcing it was opening, and there was a very long line well outside the facility. And I got a lot of platitudes for this effort. Mr. Lee initially was operating his contractors from off-base because, as I mentioned, cars were tough getting through the gates and he was obviously a Korean national. He convinced us that he really needed to be on base, so I came up with a plan. I would drive the larger MWR car, number 653, out the back gate. That gate had fewer demonstrators. The plan that I coordinated with the security police was that I would go out the gate in the government vehicle. They would see that it was just me. I would go to a designated location that was about three quarters of a mile outside the gate by a rice paddy. Mr. Lee would be waiting with his driver. I watched for his driver to flag me down. 
I pulled up and Mr. Lee hopped in the back of the car and lay below the window line. By the time I went back, there were a few more people gathering and I suspected that maybe there was a leak. Of course, it would appear that it was just me driving the car back. As I approached the gate, I didn't slow down and just proceeded onto the base so no one would look into the back seat area. And the plan worked. Luckily, the strike didn't last very long and we slowly got back to normal. The gates had cameras on them and the base authorities were able to distribute photos so that action could be taken against the most violent demonstrators. Quite a few lost their jobs. And it was an event that I'll never forget. Being selected as the PACAF MWR Operations Officer of the Year meant that I would compete again at the Air Force level. Unlike the year before, I won. In the Air Force, sometimes events like this continue to pay dividends well past the actual event. Winning the Air Force Award was truly thrilling recognition. In addition, I would get to travel to Indianapolis to accept the award. That's great! A little break from being in Korea. The annual award ceremony is in concert with the annual MWR conference that is attended by staff members and leaders at every level of command, with the target audience being MWR directors and others across the global MWR community. I was thinking I would have a chance to meet a lot of people and attend the conference. That was me thinking. The travel for the award was paid for by the Air Force, and apparently budgets were tight. All award winners who were not normally attending the conference were flown in the day before and out the following day. Wait, even those coming from as far away as PACAF and Europe? Yes. Do you know how long the flight is? <laughs> it's long. So, I flew to Indianapolis. I was tired and jet-lagged. The first reception that I was supposed to attend was maybe two hours after I arrived, plus I had to get briefed and so forth. I could barely keep my eyes open, and I don't remember much of it. At the banquet on October 5th, 1988, I accepted the award from Lieutenant General Havens, the keynote speaker who was the commander of Air University. I'm posting photos of the event and the plaque that was received. It was a whirlwind trip. I was on the ground less than 36 hours. The whole event was kind of a blur. So you really can't carry the plaque around with you all the time. Not that you would, of course. One special recognition when you win a named Air Force level award is you also earn the Air Force Recognition Ribbon. It's not on a lot of uniforms, so if you see that, you know that they won an Air Force award. As I said last week, 1988 was a very good year for me. Perhaps one of the most memorable parts of that crazy trip to Indianapolis was an announcement that the pilot made as we got closer to the United States. He came over the intercom and said, Ladies and gentlemen, we just entered U.S. airspace. I remember, actually quite vividly, how I felt my whole body relax. It was a very good feeling. I also realized that as I left, I realized that my body tensed up just a little bit, getting ready to return to the mission that I was tasked to do. Of course, they don't make those announcements anymore, and as I've traveled, I actually almost say it to myself, just because even when you're traveling for pleasure, getting home into your airspace is always a good feeling. 
Remember that when I made the decision to do a consecutive tour meant that I was in Korea for two years. I had a free trip to the United States that I didn't take. Instead, I went to, oh, I'm going to share that next week. I was going to wrap up Korea this week and remembered a few more stories to share to include that trip that I just mentioned. By this time, I'm starting the process once again for my next assignment. My first priority is still to try to get to Headquarters Tactical Air Command at Langley Air Force Base. With my fistful of awards in my pocket, I was even more sure this could possibly come to fruition. You'll see what happens next week. I'm dedicating this episode to Major Clopas. He took care of me. I was barely a new first lieutenant, and he gave me opportunities as well as the credit for the work that I was doing. It was a leadership lesson that I learned from him. Taking care of people is about doing what you can to get them recognition beyond what they normally would get. It takes a lot of effort and time to write up the award packages, get them through the process, and so forth. Throughout my career, I've had employees who are winners at many levels because it boosts their careers for years to come. Have a wonderful week, and remember the saying for Gumdori. Let's overcome adversity through cooperation and to encourage mankind to work together peacefully and harmoniously.